You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Back to school time for everyone, or it would be if it weren't for all that ransomware. The sad criminal underworld stealing from online gamers. Notes on Patch Tuesday. Joe Kerrigan considers digital comfort zones. Our guest is Sandra Wheatley from Fortinet with key findings from their new report on the cybersecurity skills shortage. And some thoughts on election security and disinformation from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. A number of U.S. school districts already stressed by the unfamiliarity of distance learning systems whose use the COVID-19 pandemic has imposed on them are recovering from a range of cyber attacks. A few, like the distributed denial-of-service attack the Miami-Dade Public Schools sustained last week, were essentially cyber-enabled truancy. So easy a teenager could do it, WPLG sniffed haughtily. A lot of teenagers, we should note, have experience with booters, some of it gained in their play of online games. But ransomware seems to have been more common. The case of the Hartford, Connecticut Public Schools is representative a ransomware infestation forced a delayed opening. Schools in Toledo, Ohio, and Clark County, Nevada, were among the larger systems similarly affected. Schools are reopening as they're able, but Tuesday's planned first day was, for many students, disrupted. It's not difficult to see why schools have been appealing targets. Ransomware operators are attracted to targets during periods of heightened vulnerability, and schools attempting to operate either fully remotely or in some hybrid combination of distance and in-person instruction present criminals an opportunity. They depend upon high availability, they have a large number of users and a difficult-to-control attack surface, and as we mentioned above, remote instruction remains an unfamiliar process, complex and fraught with unfamiliar challenges in planning and execution. So, these attacks are the main thing the kids have to worry about, right? Well, no, not really. If you're a kid yourself, or if you know kids or live with kids, you may have noticed that a lot of them spend a great deal of time online, like playing games. So, the Wall Street Journal yesterday summarized the implications of another threat to youth. Online games themselves present a big attack surface, and the players are attractive targets for a variety of reasons. Online vandals simply enjoy interfering with others' ability to play. Online bullies find games another space in which they can threaten and demean others. 
and of course there are things of value, like credentials and skins, to be stolen. The journal leads with the story of a teenaged boy who found in April that his credentials for the online game platform Steam were incorrect. After Steam restored his access, he found that some $200 worth of games he'd purchased had disappeared. Further reviews showed that someone had been signing into his account from an IP address in Moldova. There are other examples, and the journal makes its case that online game fraud is widespread. They offer some advice on protecting accounts. Most of it has a familiar ring. Use two-factor authentication and strong passwords, for example. Check the URL address to make sure you're not following a phishing link, and never click on a link in an email telling you there's a problem with your account. Two other bits of advice are also good, but as anyone who is or knows a kid will tell amount to councils of imperfection, never share login information even with friends, still less with friends. And finally, set up parental controls to ensure that purchases can't be made without parental approval. To these last, we wish everyone luck. When advising teenagers on such matters, well, as Catullus said, write it on the running water, write it on the air. Yesterday was September's Patch Tuesday, and the Zero Day Initiative has a summary of the major fixes. Adobe's three patches addressed FrameMaker, out-of-bounds read and stack-based buffer overflow, InDesign, memory corruption problems, and Experience Manager, mostly cross-site scripting issues. Microsoft's 129 fixes dealt with issues in Microsoft Windows, Edge, Chakra Core, Internet Explorer, SQL Server, Office and Office Services and Web Apps, Microsoft Dynamics, Visual Studio, Exchange Server, ASP.NET, OneDrive, and Azure DevOps. 23 of the patches are rated critical, 105 as important, and one as being of moderate severity. U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Christopher Krebs sees no serious signs of attempts to hack, in the narrow technical sense, U.S. voting infrastructure. Director Krebs said yesterday during the Billington Cybersecurity Summit, quote, The technical stuff on networks we're not seeing. It gives me a little bit of confidence, end quote. Reuters observes that this would seem to qualify remarks made a few weeks ago by U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, who warned of the likelihood of Chinese attempts against election infrastructure. CISA has been receiving reports from state and local election officials, and Director Krebs hasn't seen anything alarming there, at least not in this respect. Disinformation is another matter. DHS and its CISA unit are seeing enough of that. One possibility Krebs brought up yesterday involved the probability that election results might well take longer to tabulate than the swift results Americans have become accustomed to over the last few decades. Quote, This is probably going to take a little bit longer to do the counting because of the increase in absentee ballots, the Voice of America quoted him as saying, and going on to ask for people to have a little bit of patience. Democracy wasn't made overnight. End quote. What conclusions can be drawn from this? For one thing, it's likely that delays in counting votes could be used in hostile disinformation designed to sow doubt about the results' validity. This would be useful in particular for threat actors with the negative goal of exacerbating existing social division and mistrust. So be patient and recognize that we live online surrounded by a lot of nonsense and confusion. Cultivate your garden.
Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Depending on who you ask, the cybersecurity skills shortage, that is, the shortage of qualified workers to fill open positions, sits somewhere between the most serious issue facing the security industry today and an overhyped illusion that doesn't match the reality on the ground. Sandra Wheatley is from Fortinet, and she joins us with key findings from their new report on the cybersecurity skills shortage. I believe the skill shortage is one of the biggest challenges that security organizations are dealing with. In fact, from the survey, we found that 68% of respondents reported that their companies are struggling to recruit, hire and retain talent. And in fact, I was talking to a CISO recently, and he uh, was telling the story of how, you know, one of his top people had been hired and had a 100% increase in pay. So it's a constant challenge. And, and we believe that uh, you would need uh, over 4 million professionals just to close the skills gap alone. You know, one of the things that your research uh, points out here that caught my eye was the role that veterans could play in closing this skill gap, the, the important role that they could have. Yes, we started our veterans program about two years ago, and it's been hugely successful. It turns out that veterans have a lot of the skill sets that cybersecurity requires. And if you think about it, cybersecurity started in the in the uh, 
armed forces and and defense, and it that's where it really sprung up. And a lot of those skills map to cybersecurity very well. And so our cybersecurity program, not only does it provide our training, but we also uh, do job skills training, uh, mentoring, uh, interviewing skills, resume building. And so far we've uh, trained 400 veterans in the last two years. Uh, 200 of those veterans have been hired into technology because what we do is not only uh, once they receive their certifications, we also try to map those to jobs that our channel partners have and really just complete that whole loop. Hmm. Is there a sense that we're gaining ground on this? Do you, do you, do you think there's, there's hope that we could actually close this gap? I mean, I think we're doing all of the right things. I, I see that the one thing that's very encouraging that I think is really required is we're seeing more partnerships, private-public partnerships coming together to tackle this issue. Of all of the initiatives, this one definitely has probably the most support. So I think this is what is required to really improve the situation. I mean, the other area I think we need to tap into is getting more females into the industry. Only 14% of the workforce is female. And mm. I came into cybersecurity four years ago and I, I, it's the, of all of the IT industries I've worked in, it's the most thrilling and dynamic and interesting industry. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for women to come into the industry, but it does mean breaking some of the stereotypes and really marketing cybersecurity and educating females uh, much earlier and um, really focusing on how you market to them. That's Sandra Wheatley from Fortinet. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting uh, article from the folks over at Kaspersky. Uh, they uh, did some surveying, and uh, they published this article called More Connected Than Ever, How We Build Our Digital Comfort Zones. That's a that's a new term to me. What do you make of this, Joe? Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting survey. They have gone out and surveyed over 10,000 people in a bunch of different countries, including the U.S., the U.K., UAE, Turkey, Thailand, Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's a lot of countries (laughs) all over the place. And they've they've gathered some data. um, And they're looking at uh, a couple of things. One of the first things they're talking about is how we spend our time now that we're in uh, lockdown. And it turns out the biggest increase among a, a group of people is among people like us, Dave. Uh, people like us are spending much more time online, uh, an increase of about two and a half hours a day. Hmm. You mean in our age group? In our age group, yes. People yeah. in our age group. It's broken down by age group. And, uh, of course, they call them Generation Z, Millennials, and Generation X. Uh, yeah. And then they define those age groups uh, pretty rigidly. Uh, and, actually, Generation X is uh, generally the generation that you and I fall into, but I don't know that we'd fall into this uh, survey group. Right. Uh, because it's a little younger than us. Interesting. Um, so older people are spending more time online. What are people worried about in terms of their online connectivity and their security of their online 
information, 60% of people are worried about personal payment and financial details that are saved on their devices. Mm. Generally, Dave, I don't use uh, mobile applications for banking. Mm -hmm. Uh, I only use them when I absolutely have to, uh, like to deposit a check. In the early part of the pandemic, I had to use it to deposit a check to, uh, uh, because I couldn't get to the the bank because it was closed, right? Yeah. Um, Everything else I do on my PC uh, when I'm doing these payments, I don't do them on a mobile device. And I have all my uh, all my credentials stored in a password manager. I don't stay logged in on that device. So right. to most of the financial institutions' credits, they will they will actually uh, log you out after a, a short period of inactivity. So yeah. uh, on a web browser. But that is not the case on phone apps. They'll keep you logged in on a phone app indefinitely. Uh, mm-hmm. So... I think that's a good concern, being concerned about the ability of people to access your uh, credentials via your phone. Just somebody picking up your phone, if you have your banking app on there, you may very well be giving them uh, access to it unless you have some kind of uh, like biometric, like a fingerprint or something on it. Yeah. Um, a couple of things that struck me in this uh, in this report um, – one of them was about sharing of accounts, right? Um, things like Netflix, uh, and I think that, that's that's very common. But they were pointing out that uh, for some generations, uh, basically sharing the Netflix credentials with your roommates is quite common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and that's I think that's within the licensing agreement of, of Netflix, isn't it? I mean, you're, uh, you're I don't know. You're buying a license for a household. So everybody in that household can watch up to two screens. If you pay the two-screen price or if you have the four-screen price, you can pay a little bit more. Mm. Um, I don't know that I would share credentials. And in fact, the Hulu account that we use in our house is my son's Hulu account. And uh, my son lives with me, so this is within within the, uh, the terms and conditions. Uh, yeah. But he didn't share the credentials either. He said – Go ahead and, and use the online activation, and I'll just tell me what the code is that shows up on the screen, and I'll activate it for you. And I, <laughs> uh, the I apple felt a doesn't fall from the tree. That's does right. It? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> my chest swelled with pride when he said yeah. that. And <laughs> yeah, another thing that struck me here that I thought was kind of funny: they asked uh, who takes the technology lead in the home. And uh, four-fifths of male respondents claim that they take the lead in making IT decisions for their household. But this is contradicted by three-fifths of women stating that they take the role. <laughs> right. So there's some overlap there. There's, a, there's, at least, uh, there's at least some percentage of people that think they're in charge uh, while the other person also thinks they're in charge. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes, dear. You're, 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 you're totally in charge, dear. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here's one thing I found very concerning in the report. And it's just one sentence. It says over a third, 37% of millennials doubt they are of interest, uh, enough interest to cyber criminals to be attacked. Um, Hmm. This is one of the things when I give talks, this is one of the things I say is that you are of interest. It doesn't matter if you think you're not, you are of interest to, to these attackers. Do you have a bank account with any money in it? $20. Five dollars. It doesn't matter. That's of interest to a cyber criminal. Do mm. you have personal information? Do you have accounts online that people um, that people could sell for any value? Yes, of course. If you're online, if you're a millennial in particular, you're part of the digital native generation, right? You've grown up online. You have all these different uh, accounts online. That all has value. You are of interest to cyber criminals. Period. If you have any kind of online presence at all, you're of interest. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Well, again, uh, the report is from Kaspersky. Uh, it's titled More Connected Than Ever Before, How We Build Our Digital Comfort Zones. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time, keep you informed, and it's free of dyes and fragrances. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.